friends. So we're going to go over motivation, emotion, and stress. So this is a relatively dense chapter. Um, let's jump right in. We're going to look at factors that influence motivation, the components of emotion, stresses that lead to the stress response, um, theories, and then the physiological, cognitive, and behavioral elements. So motivation, what is it? the purpose or driving force behind our actions um, motivation can be directed towards minimizing pain maximizing pleasure or it can be rooted in the desire or appetite to fulfill a physical need through the term appetite though the term appetite is commonly used to refer to a need for food this can be applied to any need like eating drinking sleeping or social acceptance Motivation can manifest from external forces like rewards and punishments or internal forces where the behavior is personally gratifying. External forces coming from outside oneself create extrinsic motivation, which can include rewards for showing a desired behavior or avoiding punishment if the desired behavior is not achieved. So like working hard at your job for praising your boss, um, practicing for a sport so you can perform good or strongly in an upcoming game. Um, there are external tangible rewards from all of these and they can... A strong form of this is competition. Uh, motivation that comes from within oneself is referred to as intrinsic motivation. This is interest driven by interest in a task or pure enjoyment. Um, and the primary of this motivation focus on instincts that elicit natural behavior, the desire to maintain optimal levels of arousal, the drive to reduce uncomfortable states, and the goal of satisfying physiological and psychological needs. So early attempts to understand the basis of motivation focus on instincts, which are innate fixed patterns of behavior. So you can think of like wolf packs um, and their territorial natures. Um, but we also have instinctive behavior like sucking our thumbs and they can either last an entire lifetime or go away with age. Um, but an instinct is an innate fixed pattern of behavior or may be consistent throughout life, may appear or disappear. Um, and according to the instinct theory of motivation, certain behaviors are based on evolutionarily programmed instincts. So this is derived from Darwin's theory of evolution from... Uh, William James, a.k.a. the father of modern psychology, he stated that humans were motivated by many instincts, possibly more than any other animal studied, and that um, human actions are derived from 20 physical instincts, including suckling and locomotion, and 17 mental, which were including curiosity and fearfulness, but many of these were in direct conflict and could be overridden by experience. Um, William McDougall proposed that humans were led to all thoughts. And behaviors by 18 distinctive instincts, including flight and acquisition, and they both postulated the instincts of suckling and carrying food to the mouth result in naturally motivating one to eat. So another factor that influences motivation is arousal, the psychological and physiological state of being awake and reactive to stimuli. So it involves the brainstem, autonomic nervous system, and endocrine system, and plays a vital role in behavior and cognition. So arousal theory states that people perform actions in order to maintain an optimal level of arousal, seeking to increase arousal when it falls below their optimal level and to decrease it when it rises above. Um, the Yerkes-Dodson law postulates a U-shaped function between the level of arousal and performance. This states that performance is worst at extremely high and low levels of arousal and optimal at some intermediate. Um, and it varies between different types of tasks, so lower levels are optimal for highly cognitive tasks, and higher levels are optimal for activities that require physical endurance and stamina. Um, and simple tasks require generally more arousal than complex tasks. 
So drives are defined as internal states of tension that activate particular behaviors focused on goals. Drives are thought to originate within an individual without requiring any external factors to motivate behavior, so they help humans survive by creating an uncomfortable state, ensuring motivation to eliminate the state, and relieve the internal tension created by unmet needs. So there's primary drives, like the need for food, water, warmth, to motivate us to sustain bodily processes in homeostasis, which is the regulation of the internal environment to maintain an optimal, stable set of conditions, and then external bleh, bleh. In homeostatic regulation, external factors are encountered, and the system will react to push the system back to its optimal state. So, like, think of Le Chatelier's principle. Um, homeostasis is controlled by negative feedback loops, so people think about thermostats. Um, when our bodies lack human uh, nutrients and energy, feedback systems release hormones like ghrelin to create hunger and motivating to motivate eating. And then when we consume food, feedback is sent to the brain to turn off the hunger drive through hormones like leptin. So, yeah, the concentrations of many hormones um, are regulated by the three organ axes. So the hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis is an example. Um, and then additional drives that are not directly related to biological processes are called secondary drives. And they are thought to stem from learning. So like to matriculate into med school, become a physician. Um, include certain emotions, like for nurturing, love, achievement, aggression. Um, and then there's drive reduction theory, which is the explanation that motivation is based on the goal of eliminating uncomfortable states. So certain physiological conditions can result in a negative internal environment, and then this internal environment then drives motivation and seeks homeostasis in order to reduce the uncomfortable internal state. Um, and then we've got need-based theories of motivation. So Energy and resources are allocated to best satisfy human needs. There can be primary needs, which is, again, like physiological needs, like food, water, sleep, shelter. Then there are secondary needs, which is like mental states, which is power, achievement, social belonging, desires. And then we've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, he defined needs as relatively long-lasting feelings that require relief or satisfaction and tend to influence action. So certain needs will yield a greater influence on our motivation, and he established this triangle pyramid. Um, there's five groups, and there's different priority for each group. Um, the most primitive, essential, and important needs are at the base, and the first four levels correspond to physiological needs, safety and security, love and belonging, and self-esteem. The highest level corresponds to self-actualization, or the need to realize one's fullest potential. So if you don't meet the physiological lowest level of needs, then um, if additional needs exist, they can't be met, but if the lowest level is met, then the additional needs um, will be met. They'll be, yeah, satisfied based on priority. Okay, I think I said that right. Yeah, there we go. So another need-based motivational theory is the self-determination theory, which emphasizes the role of three universal needs, which is autonomy, the need to be in control of one's actions and ideas, competence, the need to complete and excel at difficult tasks, and rel relatedness the need to feel accepted and wanted in relationships. Um, then there's some other theories. So there's opponent process theory and sexual motivation. Um, there's incentive theory that explains that behavior is motivated not by need or arousal, but by the desire to pursue rewards and to avoid punishments. There's expectancy value theory, which states the amount of motivation needed to reach a goal is a result of both the individual's expectation of success in reaching the goal and the degree to which he or she values succeeding at the goal. Um, So, 
I won't go into more of that. Um, so opponent process theory. So motivations are destructive if they result in harm to oneself. Um, so like drug abuse. Um, a theory of motivation that explains continuous drug use is the opponent process theory. So this theory explains that when a drug is taken repeatedly, the body will attempt to counteract the effects of the drug by changing its physiology. So um, the body will counteract repeated use of alcohol by increasing arousal. But this issue is that it will last longer than the drug, resulting in withdrawal symptoms that are exactly opposite the effects of alcohol. Um, the withdrawal can create a physical dependence on the drug, um, and then it can also explain tolerance, which is a decrease in perceived drug effect over time. Um, there's also cultural and demographic factors that affect drug use, um, like having smoking in more uh, disadvantaged socioeconomic groups, and Yeah, young adults are the most likely age group to smoke, which is wild, but I believe it. So, sexual motivation. So, it's another area that has been widely studied. Alfred Kinsey looked at this um, from interviewing people from a broad range of sociocultural backgrounds. He wanted to see what sexual behavior people were participating in, how often, with whom, and what age. They published another study involving physiological measurement of sexual arousal, so showing that men and women experience similar responses just based on, the differences are just based on cultural influences and learned behavior also. Physiologically, humans are motivated to sexual behavior based on the secretion of estrogens, progesterone, and androgens. Um, there's a strong correlation between hormone concentration and sexual desire. And then another um, biological factor for sexual motivation is smell, so certain odors have been shown to increase sexual desire and activity. And then pleasure and the interpretation of pleasure is also a key player in sexual motivation. And then both men and women experience the same levels of arousal when they watch sexually explicit videos, but women more often reported being unaroused or feeling disgusted. So this is showing that cognition plays a role in sexual motivation and cultural and society to influence what is deemed appropriate, the age at which and with whom. So that is that. Uh, we'll move on to Emotion, which is a natural instinctive state of mind derived from one's circumstances, mood, or relationship with others. There's three elements of an emotion. There's physiological, behavioral, and cognitive, um, a trend that we're seeing. Um, so when a feeling is first experienced, arousal is simulated by the autonomic nervous system. There can be changes in heart rate, breathing rate, skin temperature, blood pressure, and... We can think about like fear, aggression, embarrassment. There's those have more pronounced physiological changes. Um, the behavioral includes like the, excuse me, facial expressions and body language. So with a smile, a hand gesture, a head nod. Excuse me. And then we have the cognitive component of emotion, which is the subjective interpretation of the feeling being experienced. So determining one's emotion is an evaluative process, largely based on memories of past experiences and perception of the cause of the emotion. So Darwin argued that emotions are a result of evolution, so they they and their um, expressions are universal, and all humans evolve from the same set of facial muscles to show the same expressions when communicating emotion regardless of their society or culture, which is sparking some discussion. So there can be a set, um, as Paul Ekman described, of basic emotions that are recognized by societies around the world, and there are six emotions with consistent facial expressions. Um, 
happiness, sadness, contempt, surprise, fear, disgust, and anger. And they have specific facial expression cues that I'll read. So happiness is a smile, wrinkling, wrinkling around the eyes, raised cheeks. Sadness, frown, inner eyebrows pulled up together. Contempt, one corner of the mouth pulled upwards. Surprise, eyes widen, eyebrows pulled up, and curved jaw opens. Fear, eyes widen, eyebrows pulled up and together, lips pulled towards ears. Disgust, nose wrinkling and or raising of upper lip. And anger, glaring, eyebrows pulled down and together, lips pressed together. But, um, again, there's like cultural dissimilarities in emotion, including varying reactions to similar events. Differences in the emotional experience itself and the behavior exhibited in response to an emotion and the perception of that emotion by others within the society. Um, so the... Again, going back to Darwin's thoughts on universal emotion, the evolutionary perspective states that everything we do, think, and feel is based on specialized functional programs designed for any problem we encounter. These programs are functionally coordinated in order to produce a cohesive response, and emotions are thought to be evolutionary adaptations due to situations encountered over the evolutionary history of the human species that guide sensory processing, physiological response, and behavior. So different emotions are thought to have evolved. Um, during different periods in history, and then the earliest to develop were like primal emotions like fear, and then more progressive emotions include like guilt and pride. Um, so, early psychologists believe that the cognitive component of emotion led to the physiological, which then produced the behavioral. So, the feeling of anger started with the perception of negative stimulus, which caused physiological changes, such as increased skin temperature, which then resulted in the behavior like yelling. So, this explains. This explanation assumes that feeling precedes arousal, which precedes action. Um, but William James, the founder of functionalist theory, viewed the progression of these emotional elements differently. So Carl Long, Lange developed a theory of emotion similar, and they have an explanation called the James-Long theory of emotion. Um, so a stimulus results first in physiological arousal, which leads to a secondary response in which the emotion is labeled. Then, when the peripheral organs receive information and respond, that response is then labeled as an emotion by the brain. So, like a car cutting you off on the highway is a stimulus for an elevated heart rate and blood pressure, increased skin temperature, and dry mouth. These physiological responses result in the cognitive labeling of anger. And then, by extension, an emotion would not be processed without feedback from the peripheral organs. So, this predicts that individuals who cannot mount a sympathetic response, like patients with spinal cord injuries, should show decreased levels of emotion. And this is actually false, so that's awkward. Um, then there's the Cannon-Bard theory, which is another scheme for explaining emotional components. Um, they looked at emotion and expression and its relationship to feedback from the sympathetic nervous system using cats whose afferent nerves had been severed. He hypothesized that physiological arousal and feeling and emotion occur at the same time, not in sequence. Um, so severing the feedback should not alter the emotion experienced. Um, it states that the conscious experience of emotion and physiological arousal occurs simultaneously, and then the behavioral component of emotion, so action follows. So, there are still weaknesses in this theory, because the Cannon-Barr theory fails to explain the vagus nerve, which is a cranial nerve that functions as a feedback system, conveying information from the peripheral organs back to the central nervous system. Um, so, yeah. There's that theory. And then we've got the Schachter-Singer theory. It's also known as the cognitive arousal theory or the two-factor theory, which states that the two factors 
are needed to experience emotion, the physiological arousal and a cognitive label. So physiological arousal alone is insufficient to elicit an emotional response. The mind must also identify the environmental stimulus causing that physiological arousal. So I am excited because my heart is racing and everyone else is happy. Um, this is unique because you have to consciously analyze the environment in relation to nervous system arousal. Um, so they looked at um, they gave injections of epinephrine or placebo to groups of subjects that were either informed, ignorant, or misinformed, and they manipulated external cues in the study by having an actor either have, act angry or happy. And epinephrine did result in increased physiological arousal, but they discovered that the environment and cognitive processing affected the emotion experienced by the subject. So the misinformed and ignorant groups experienced the highest levels of emotion, and a subject expressing... A subject experiencing physiological arousal with no explanation or with a misleading explanation will attribute that arousal to the surrounding environment and label himself as happy or angry based on the behavior of the actor. The presence of unexpected arousal plus an environment that encourages a particular emotion is sufficient to create that emotion in the subject. But on the contrary, the informed group knew to expect physiological arousal from the drug and this attributed their feelings to side effects of the epinephrine rather than to emotions. So there's that. Um, but where does emotion really even come from like what how does it work so the experience of emotion happens in the brain obviously one of these uh, big components is the limbic system a complex set of structures that resides below the cerebrum on either side of the thalamus as shown in the figure here that i'm looking at but you are not i don't know why i said that again um, this system has the amygdala, thalamus, hypothalamus, hippocampus, and fornix, septal nuclei, and parts of the cerebral cortex, and it plays a large role in both motivation and emotion. So let's get into it. The amygdala is a small round structure that signals the cortex about stimuli related to attention and emotions. It processes the environment, detects external cues, and learns from the person's surroundings in order to produce emotion. And this is also a place of, uh, associated with fear and plays a role in human emotion through interpretation of facial expressions. Um, the thalamus functions as a preliminary sensor processing station and routes information to the cortex and other appropriate areas of the brain. The hypothalamus is below the thalamus and synthesizes and releases a variety of neurotransmitters. And it serves homeostatic functions and is involved in modeling emotion. And um, it can control the neurotransmitters that affect behavior and arousal and largely dictates emotional states. So then we have the hippocampus within the temporal lobe, which is involved in creating long-term memories. Um, the storage and retrieval of emotional memories is key in producing an emotional response, and it aids in creating context for stimuli to lead to an emotional experience. Um, so when an emotion is experienced, these sensory systems transmit this information into both the explicit memory system, primarily controlled by the hippocampus in the medial temporal lobe, and the implicit memory system, controlled by the amygdala. Both memory systems are used for both the formation and retrieval of emotional memories. The conscious explicit memory is the memory of experiencing the actual emotion and then remembering like you were happy at your high school graduation or that you were sad when you lost a loved one is explicit memory. And then these are episodic, obviously. They're more properly considered memories about emotions than stored emotions. Then we've got the unconscious or implicit memory, which is referred to as emotional memory. This is the storage of the actual feelings of emotion associated with an event. So like um, when experiencing a similar event, these emotions can be retrieved and the explicit memory of the emotion later produces a conscious memory of the experience, and an implicit memory determines the expression of past emotions. So the distinction can be further identified when we look at individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder. The explicit memory is the story of the event, what happened, where it occurred, who was involved, the fact that the scenario was traumatic, and so forth, and the implicit memory corresponds to the sensations of unease and anxiety when you put them back into a similar environment. 
So the ability to distinguish and interpret others' facial expressions is primarily controlled by the temporal lobe with some input from the occipital lobe, and this is lateralized, so the right hemisphere is more active when discerning facial expressions than the left. There's also differences in gender, so like women demonstrate more activation of these brain areas than men. Um, this ability is present but weak in children and develops into adulthood, and adults are much more effective at identifying both positive and negative emotions. Um, we've got the prefrontal cortex, which is the anterior portion of the frontal lobes and is associated with planning inter intricate cognitive functions, expressing personality and making decisions. The prefrontal cortex also receives arousal input from the brainstem, coordinating arousal and cognitive states. It has been demonstrated that the left prefrontal cortex is associated with positive emotions and the right with negative. We've got the dorsal prefrontal cortex associated with attention and cognition, and the ventral prefrontal cortex connects with regions and uh, regions of the brain responsible for experiencing emotion. And so specifically, there's the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is uh, thought to play with taught to play a substantial role in decision making and controlling emotional responses from the amygdala. So, um, as described earlier, so the autonomic service system is related to emotions. Specific physiological reactions are associated with specific emotions. Skin temperature, heart rate, breathing rate, and blood pressure are all affected when experiencing emotion. There's decreased skin temperature and detect Decreased skin temperature is detected in subjects experiencing fears, while um, increased skin temperature is associated with anger, increased heart rate for both anger and fear, and decreased heart rate for happy subjects. Uh, decreased heart, vari heart rate variability is associated with stress, frustration, and anger. Blood pulse volume increases with anger or stress, and decreases with sadness or relaxation. Skin conductivity is directly correlated with um, sympathetic arousal, and however, a specific Emotion cannot be identified by a skin response. So there's that. And then, of course, blood pressure. So diastolic blood pressure is increased to the greatest degree by anger, followed by fear, sadness, and happiness. Um, I think I'll stop it there since we do have a, quite a bit to go regarding stress. So the next episode will be focusing on stress and the concept summary. So I'll see y'all then.